Welcome one and all. I'm Chris Stone, the Virtual Agile Coach, and this is the Virtually Agile Podcast, the pod that shares conversations with agile thought leaders, as well as amplifying newer voices. You'll hear about agility, virtual working, and everything in between. In today's episode, we hear from an ex-US Navy captain about intent-based leadership and the power of language in the workplace. If you find value in listening, don't forget to follow or subscribe on your platform of choice. It's the best way to hear about the latest episodes as they land. Enjoy the show. Fellow Agilists, welcome to the premiere episode of season four of the Virtually Agile podcast. One of the central themes in this season is destigmatizing failure and how failure can be reframed as learning opportunities. So we'll be hearing from today's guests about their experiences with failure. We are kicking season four off in style. Today's guest has been a huge influence on my own leadership style. He's a best-selling author of books including Turn the Ship Around and Leadership is Language. A keynote speaker and ex-commanding officer of the USS Santa Fe, a leader who aims to build leaders at every level of an organization. I'm ecstatic to welcome David Marquet to the show. Thank you, Chris, for having me on your show and welcome everybody out there. It's a pleasure to have you here. So, David, for anyone who isn't perhaps familiar with you and your work, tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background. I grew up in the 70s, uh, maladjusted, introverted, geeky, snot-nosed, know-it-all kid. But I had some deeply held uh, values and beliefs, and they included the idea that we needed to win the Cold War because a world where people had choice in their religion, profession, spouse, sexual orientation, whatever, was a better world. And uh, so for someone like me with the strengths and the weaknesses that I had, the submarine force was the best option. Somehow I stumbled into that. The submarines hide from people. So that was that was uh, really attractive to me. And uh, I, I think it was a good decision. I ended up being selected to be a submarine commander, but the the rug got pulled out from under my feet when at the very last minute I got sent to command the worst performing submarine in the fleet, which sounds dramatic, but that wasn't really the problem. The problem was it was a different kind of submarine that I ever knew before. And my toolkit for leadership was about making decisions, good decisions, and getting the team to do it. And now I had, those tools were largely unhelpful uh, in this in this, in this this situation. And we had to design a new toolkit. So that segues very nicely into my next question. Your books, they center around the concept of intent-based leadership. So David, in your words, what is intent-based leadership? How would you describe it to someone who is new to the concept? Intent-based leadership is a language that we speak at work that allows people to contribute so they feel valued. In our minds, we tend to hold a couple things that we want in tension. One is distributed decision-making hey, we're going to treat everyone like adults. You get the, we're going to give you the ability to make decisions. You're going to have a sense of agency at work. Yeah, it's all great. Uh, but the other thing we want is, in the military, we would call it unity of effort. Like, I want everyone going in the same direction. I don't want each team moving in a different direction. I want you making, designing the product for this, and you designing the product 
to achieve that and not understanding the, the, the unity of effort. So we hold those intention and we, so we flip-flop between either quote, empowering people, which is good for distributed decision-making, but risks, uh, it challenges the unity of effort, or I have strict control, which I get tremendous unity of effort, but it's demoralizing because no one gets to think. And we think that you can break that, that orthogonal relationship with the word intent. You can get both of those things and you can get both of them in spades. And it's not the way we normally talk. So that's why we say it's a new language. Normally either we get permission or we just do stuff. And intent gets you the best of both. So we announce what we're going to do before we do it. It's pre-decisional. And the key is it invites feedback. Giving feedback is worthless. Inviting feedback is has unlimited value. So only when I give feedback in response to someone who's interested in feedback is it really going to matter. So the idea is to build an organization where people are constantly seeking feedback and wanting to get better, which means you got to put aside your ego in a sense of being defensive about, well, you know, really it wasn't my fault. And geez, we only had the tools we had and everyone tried their best. <laughs> but product didn't, didn't achieve what we wanted it to. Interesting. Now, what I love about that is the invitation of feedback. And what I think that really nicely leads into is continuous improvement. I'm a huge advocate of continuous improvement in organizations. One of the main proponents of that, I believe, is retrospection. So pausing to reflect on how you're doing, what you could be doing better. And feedback is absolutely key to that. And inviting that feedback, absolutely crucial. Now, tell me, David, why, why is intent-based leadership particularly relevant in a modern business context? I've seen, for example, examples of how it can be very powerful within organizational change as they adapt to modern agile ways of working. What are your thoughts and experiences here? Yeah. Well, we're in a transition. We've come through a period of history, which we called the industrial age or the industrial revolution. And it's a period where manufacturing was preeminent. And it was also a period where literacy rates went from 5% to 95%. So the fundamental problem that's existed for all time is that to get anything done, you need to use your brain in two different ways. You need to be very expansive in terms of like, what are we going to do and how are we going to, how are we going to do it? And this, this decision-making and what are the options? And it's a very sort of broad perspective. And you'll feel this. You sort of have this open awareness of what's on the boundary peripheries of your vision. And then, but then we actually need to build the boat. So I get out my hammer, I'm chopping wood, I'm putting nails in. And at this point, I need to focus, otherwise my hammer is going to hit my thumb. And so now I'm, I don't want to be distracted or I'm coding. I got my headphones on. I don't want to be distracted. And so I narrow the focus. And the industrial, uh, the industrial organization solved the problem 
by anointing certain people as the decision makers, and they had a broad perspective on life, and then the doers who ran the machines, and they had a very narrow focus perspective. And that was easy. We didn't need to change. If I was a doer, which the vast majority of mankind was, I didn't need to oscillate between a focused doing perspective and an expansive thinking perspective. But now you do. And this is one of the things that Agile, it's baked into Agile, the rhythm of a sprint and then a retrospective and then a planning. So sprint in the work, retrospective, broad, planning, broad, decisions, back into the work. And you want to be deeply in the work when you're in the work and you want to be expansively in the broad part of it when you're in the broad part of it. You don't want to be in the work, but always like one year out, well, how's it going to change? That's not helpful. So what we do now is you have both modes of thinking, but they occur in the whole team. And instead of having it be these people do the thinking and these people do the doing, we all do the thinking periodically. That's the difference. And so we need to change from this thinking is assigned by role to thinking is assigned by the clock. And I like that there's this fundamental shift where in the past, you know, you had people directing work. This is how you do it. You've got this time frame. It was all about maximizing productivity. Typically in this industrial age, we've got fixed products we're making. We're going to maximize as much. Yeah, as much units as we can out of that time frame. Whereas nowadays, what we're working with a lot of the time is is complex work where we don't necessarily know how much time it may take. There is a lot more unknowns, a lot more volatility, a lot more change. And therefore, what we need to do is switch that mindset where instead leaders leaders are coming to our, you know, those they're working, the doers and saying, this is, this is the outcome we're heading towards. This is the problem we need to solve. How can we collectively solve it together? And empowering them to come with intent to decide and think, how could we solve these problems? Yeah, and but not talk about it forever. Like actually make a decision yeah. and actually start doing work. And you actually spend more time in the work. But we see this all the time. For example, uh, we have a construction company as a client. I'm on the construction site. And of course, the, you know, there's time pressure because we promised the resort's going to be open on a certain day. So people are making reservations to come and it would be a big embarrassment if it, if it didn't open that day. And we see the activity. We see, uh, for example, the guy with the nail gun going pop, 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 pop. And so my mind is drawn, okay, the way to go faster is to beat on that person. I see him taking a three-minute coffee break. Come on, you got to get back to work. Like that will have no impact. It, it, it might squeeze 0.01% faster. When the guy puts his nail gun down and he says, well, I'm done with this. Now there's a two day delay because the windows aren't there. That's where you need to focus. You got to close those seams. That's where you got to, that's where you're going to win. That's your job. That's management's job. And over and over and over again, what I see is, there's a very piecemeal approach and we don't think of the task across the seams. We're, th- 
Yeah, well, I do this. And a lot of it's it's getting worse, in my opinion, because now we have these little specialists, and I go, oh, I only do this. And then we pass it over to them. And then there's a four-day gap where nothing happens. And then this happens. And then we have a six-day gap because we're waiting for a decision. And then, then we scurry, and we try and cram eight days of work into seven. But meantime, I lost six days, so I was waiting for a decision. So what you want get with intent is you just launch this. You say, hey, here's what we intend to do. We intend to add these features. We intend to not add these features. We intend to do this testing, not do this testing. We intend to launch the product, not launch the product. And then you don't need a response. It frees you from the burden of the response. It decouples uh, that communication from the progress in the project. And, I, and Agile is good. It talks about removing the in, uh, uh, unnecessary interdependencies. Um, and I see this all the time too. People will say, well, uh, when you send me that, I'll send you this. Like, well, why? You just send it to me. You don't need something from me to send. I see this in, like in my own team. Like, just send it to me now. Um, anyway. Once that's again, another, another, another thing I believe is... <laughs> run, run away, don't worry. That's another thing I think is powerful about yeah. Agile is that it builds in into its structure, ways of working and capable people a full end-to-end capability where you're not dependent upon another team to do something because you've enabled the end-to-end uh capability within the teams so you're not saying right well you do our part and we'll hand over to you in fact what we're trying to do is say we've got our team that can collectively do all of this and we're empowered to do all of it without having to get x number of decisions like we, we create product right. roles where that person is empowered to make a decision on behalf of people within the business, what rather than having to go and wait for this right. silo sign off process that takes time. And we try and avoid this decision paralysis situation, taking a bias towards action. Now, I'm keen to hear. I will, I will say, I will say, sorry, I will. Well, I will say this, though, because what I see is the software team is excited and they are implementing agile and then it runs into the senior vice president for operations or product, you know, some level in the organization, all of a sudden it all goes, and it's their own fault. We want to blame the dinosaurs that are running the organization, but some things that they do, they, we agile do wrong is, we don't use intent. We present it like, well, we decided this. And because we're deciding, we quote, empower to make the decision. I don't need to talk to my boss. Again, all these things are the wrong approach. And I, I would say, hey, boss, here's what we intend to do. Here's what we intend to do. Here's what we intend to do. We're, gonna, we're t- having a meeting in two weeks to tweak this. We'd love your input then, whatever. But it, when you say, well, I, the decision is made, it's just like the team wants to feel like they have a, a autonomy and agency. Your well, your boss certainly wants to feel like they he or she's got some agency over the product, and so you're removing that. So it's your own fault, and you want to really be as transparent as possible. We're not doing that. For example, you're driving a car. I'm like my daughter's learning how to drive a car was back when, and I seeing I'm seeing. Dangers. I'm seeing little stoplights. I'm seeing uh, plant family playing in the dr- and I'm at. Hey Emily, do you see? Do you what? And she's getting miffed. 
Like, why are you bothering me? Of course I do. And I said, well, I don't know, because you're not saying anything. Because normally we don't say things when we're driving. So we're going to just say what you're seeing. So I know it. Hey, Dad, I see that. I see this. I see that. I see a car coming. If they swerve into my lane, I'm going to react. But I'm not just mindless about driving. Again, so this is the whole idea is like, well, you did it to yourself. So this, this idea that somehow I'm going to hunker down and just do my thing and hopefully my boss won't bother me. That's wrong thinking. It's the communication to your boss that gives you the, earns you the right to do those things. And you touched upon it, transparency. Again, something that Agile in particular aims to build, to create is transparency. Some of the principles therein are trying to create an environment where people from the business side and those building the work are working together on a daily basis. You know, you've got teams that are building stuff and, and building feedback loops that enable frequent learning, iteration, adjusting accordingly. So yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying there. One thing I do want to yeah. pick up on though is I, I heard you say they agree. <laughs> well, yeah, because I'm not really okay, an agilist, but I do feel I'm, I'm, I really do support the community and I think it's, a, it's, it's great. I'm just like, I don't know, it just came out, but that's interesting. But here's the other thing. Um, you were just talking about, uh, I had a brilliant uh, thought. You were just talking about. I, so the, I, I, I couldn't oh, say they, they yeah, were. It was, um, I know you, okay, did a, no. you did a leadership lunch recently, right? Yeah, you did a leadership lunch on this exact topic. Saying, oh, well, we have a status board and you can look at it any time. That is not enough. That is a score 0 0.1 in the transparency score. Uh, that's not enough because when you're the boss and you all, we've all been there. Okay. Now I have, so what does it do every day? I got 14 teams. I got to go look through each. No, that doesn't count. Okay. You get no credit for that. You coming to me and saying, Hey, we got this critical thing coming up. Grab me by the ear, drag me down to where the team's Kanban board is and say, let me give you a minute to study this. Okay. Now what, what questions do you have? Now let's talk about it. Now let's go from there. That's transparency. Don't think that, oh, well, you know, anyone could look anytime at the thing. That, yeah. Plus, I have status boards for all my social media accounts and all that. So, so that, you don't get credit for that. I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm just beating up on agile people, I feel like, but I love them. No, I'm not. It's, I, I'm, I'm all for you challenging, right? It, like, there's enough people just agreeing with the status quo and being in the echo chamber. I like that you're saying, hey, we could be doing better here. You know, a dashboard that just passively exposes information when someone has got nth level of dashboards to look at, they're not going to get time to that. How, how often do you even read your emails, let alone going to every little dashboard on a daily basis? So, yeah, intent goes beyond, intent and transparency goes beyond just creating something passive. Go and speak to someone, have a conversation with an individual. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Yes. All right. Over to you. <laughs> so I just want to, yeah, I want to pull, pull you back to a, a, something you mentioned earlier. You said they, and then you corrected yourself and you said we. And actually, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you about. I know it's one of your leadership nudges, and it's linked to your book, Leadership Lang is Language, the, the hidden power of what you say and, and what you don't say. So tell me more about that particular use of language. Why, why we rather than they? When you say the word we or we is the word you use to refer to somebody in your tribe. 
it sends a signal to your brain. This person's in my tribe. I can trust them. And they're a person that I collaborate with. When you say the word they, it's saying this person is not in my tribe. It's a person that I compete with and that I should be very skeptical of trusting. They need to earn trust. Now, we normally view the language as we say, well, there are these tribes out there. What kind of tribes? Well, we're uh, the C-suite is a tribe and we're in senior management is a tribe versus we're in software engineering, which is a totally separate tribe. And they're in marketing. That's a different tribe than product design. So we have all these tribes. And the way we think about it is these tribes are somewhat immutable and I should choose the word uh, as I'm speaking to match the reality of the tribe. If you want more collaboration, what you want to do, however, is change the word to match what you want the tribal reality to be. So in other words, rather than just putting up a poster on the wall that says, well, we're one big happy family at XYZ Software Company, say we're going to refer to each other as we, no matter where you are in the tribe. You may feel initially like you're crossing a tribal boundary, but when you say the word we, since that's the word you use for someone in your tribe, it also works the other way around. When I say it, it's telling your brain, this person's in my tribe. And that's, and then you feel like they're in your tribe. The, the feeling comes later. We act our way to new feelings. We talk our way to new feelings. And uh, I saw this on the submarine. It was amazing. People said, oh, you guys have the most amazing culture of teamwork. And I, I laughed. I I hated the culture words. Like culture, what's that? How do you spell that? I never talked about culture. So, oh yeah, no, but we do have a protocol which we refer to each other as we. Now that's 145 people. You can make that. You can make a tribe that big. If you have 10,000 people in your company, it's going to be harder. But you certainly want the tribe size. I've seen tribal units of one in some companies because they everyone's has a big status board. How we're all doing as salesmen? Oh look, John's like his his he's got a little horse symbol and he's way over there to the right and everyone else is back here like oh well, well i wonder why it doesn't feel like a tribe <laughs> so yeah the um the language hugely important there's there's a few parallels that i tend to draw in in the agile world in particular especially on the organizational change side of things a lot of the times i'll go and work with a client and I'll observe these tribes or these silos where it's a, a software engineering team and it's a, a testing team and it's a marketing team and otherwise. And it becomes a, you know, oh, we just need to speak to the business. That's the language I hear a lot. We need to speak to the business, not our business. No, not not a we phrasing. It's the right. business. And right. then it reinforces Love the fact that you're a silo. They're a People separate entity. It's them. They're Who's thing, the right? business? Exactly. Yeah, right. So the, the, not so us. The, it's the business. Exactly. It, it becomes a very similar thing. So your use of they, we, I hear it all the time with yeah. the business versus our business. And this is something that I encourage yeah. people to use instead. Rather than saying, oh, we just need to speak to the business, just say, right, collectively, we are going to work this through together. It's our business. Helps yeah. to build that language change and reinforce that culture. A similar one as well. And I, I like, again, your, your use of action. Action builds change. 
so often companies go and say, oh, our company has psychological safety or a leader will go to people and say, you have psychological safety. We want you to speak out. And people go quiet because saying you have psychological safety does not create psychological safety. It's the actions over time that reinforce and create an environment where you can right. speak up and challenge the status quo and say something that maybe right. maybe slightly worry might not be agreed with, but that's okay. So, and this is one of the reasons why I'm keen to celebrate failure in particular. Companies that celebrate failure, I find, have a lot of psychological safety because they're creating an environment where people can make mistakes and learn from them. Yeah. And that was a, it's a, a theme of this, this particular season. So I know you talk in your book, uh, Turn the Ship Around, David, about a particular failure you experienced when you went on to the Santa Fe for the first time. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and your, and your learning from the experience? Uh, well, I gave an order that was irrelevant on the submarine, which was very embarrassing. I ordered the shifting to second gear on an electric motor that only had one gear. This, is, this was the main propulsion motor so uh it, it wasn't like some little side motor in the corner someplace this was a very basic fundamental um, aspect of driving the submarine and uh you know, my excuse was i was just sent to the ship at the last minute and i didn't have a chance to learn everything and it was a different kind of ship i'd ever been on blah 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 blah, blah. so of course in my mind my mind is rationalizing this, but it's still very embarrassing. It was very sad. And the, um, but, but out of it came goodness because it forced me to rethink my role as a leader, which I'd always said, well, my role as a leader is to make decisions to get the team to do what I decided for them to do, as opposed to, well, why am I actually deciding this? And it's a little bit even more nuanced than that. I wanted to be in the role of decision evaluator as opposed to decision maker. So when someone says, so if someone says, here's what I intend to do, I can evaluate the decision and I could veto it, but the initiative and the ownership and the thinking comes from them. If we do the typical thing, which is, no, no, you just decide, I've removed the decision. There's no decision evaluation mode. I'm only learning afterwards that we did certain things, which is not helpful. It's not what you want. So you want, you want to separate the role of decision maker from decision evaluator. And you want it, but you also don't want the most senior person to be the decision maker because then there's no separation, no psychological separation to decision evaluator. You can see, we do this all day long. We can see how, I can see how my sisters could do better raising her kids and my cousin, blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing, they can see that about you. It's so much easier to see what other people can and should be doing than for us to see our own. And that's probably just how we're wired. So it's easier to see flaws in somebody else's decision. And it's easier to see evidence that the decision can be improved than it is on our own. So if, if you make a decision, just realize you've contaminated yourself and you're no longer uh, unbiased with regards to evidence that will accrue over time as to whether that was the right decision or not. Do so you see like 737, Boeing launched a 737 MAX, the first plane crashes and Boeing's like, no, no, it's not our fault. 
oh, it's because those guys didn't know how to fly airplanes and all this other stuff. And like they, a part of it's because they were bad, <laughs> evil, captured by the wrong objectives. And they had a non-psychologically safe culture. But part of it is just legitimate human biases, which will filter out evidence that it was a bad decision. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that story. And I think to me, the, the powerful thing and one of the main takeaways from that book in particular was how a, an environment such as the U.S. Navy, which is so traditionally command and control in mindset, where you don't expect to be able to flip things around and provide and empower people and create this intent-based leadership model actually works. And there's a lot of resistance from companies around the world thinking, oh, it won't, you know, this sort of model won't work for us because things are quite regulated and they have to they have to be done in a certain way here. But the fact that it could work in an environment like the US Navy demonstrated to me it could work in many places. So the question I have next for me for you is. If there was one piece of advice that you would give to anyone looking to develop leaders at all levels, what would it be? Stop telling people what to do. <laughs> Control the structure. Look, we all know we all know the story of quality in manufacturing, the Toyota production or the Deming quality. Where the old way was you put a, you'd have a semi-chaotic process and then we put inspector at the end who looked at the automobiles and said, good, bad, good, bad, good, 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 bad. And uh, the new way was to bake the quality into the manufacturing process. Well, you want to think about that, your decision-making model in the exact same way. So product one of your company is cars or software or banking solutions or whatever it is. Product two are the, are the decisions that support that. So we have this exact same situation where we have a chaotic decision-making model, which is all, all, like, who makes this decision? How do they make it? You know how many times people, someone has handed me a book and says, this is zero. <laughs> so, so it's like, well, who makes it? Well, it's embedded in this person's job description. Okay, well, how do they make it? Well, you know, they make it. They talk, well, again, I won't go into that. But the bottom line is we don't control the process. Therefore, we place ourselves as the inspector at the end of decision-making, and we feel like that's our job. It's legitimized. All we're, we're the, We have the same job as the guy who's checking paint and the car came out of the factory. It's no more glamorous than that. But we pay CEOs. Now the average CEO depends upon how many companies you go to, but average CEO in the U S is pay last year is 40 million. It's on the order of, no, it was 15 million, but it was on the order of 400 times the average pay in the company. The pay of the CEO was on average 400 times more than the average pay in the company for the top uh, hundred companies or so. It's ridiculous. Why? Oh, because there's, because they put themselves in this position, well, I'm not going to really fix the decision-making model, but I get to be the one who says, I'm going to, I'm going to make brilliant decisions. And so it's a very personality-based thing as opposed to like, just make a good decision-making model. And then the decision, then you don't need 
the the person at the end. So think about your decisions as a product in the same way that you think about the actual product. Great insights. Thank you for sharing. Now, I've just been reminded of another particularly important language change that I use, right? So when I'm, I'm a huge proponent of not referring to people as resources. So you've got human resources departments all across the world still. And my, my fear is, is that by calling someone a resource, you can basically dis dehumanize them. They make them into a line on a spreadsheet, a piece of paper, a pen, a desk, a table, something to be disposed of. So I'm wondering if you feel that's a, a, la a piece of language that belongs more in the industrial era and should be something that we look to change in the business world. Yeah, it's terrible uh, because that gets me to product number three. Humans are not a resource to be exploited in order to a make yourself rich or even make a product. Humans are the humans are a key product of the organization, whether they leave at the end of their working careers or they leave for summer holiday or they leave at the end of their shift and just go home for 12 hours. Uh, I think right thinking leaders understand there's three products, the product, the decisions behind the product, and then the people who make the decisions behind the product. And the, and, and the question is, are, are, are these people who are leaving our company the best versions of themselves? Have we set it up so that they can be gracious and relaxed when they're driving and not get upset at some little slide? And when they go home and someone in their family is telling a story that they can be curious and inquisitive and and supporting as opposed to defensive and fear-based and worried about something that happened at work. And the traditional approach is kind of starting the outside of that shell with what we make and then think about what the decisions are. And then, okay, maybe we even get to the point where we start thinking about the people making decisions. Uh, but I think the path for long-term success is to start on the inside and to start with the people because only people who are feeling uh, safe, relaxed, comfortable, driven are going to be able to make good decisions that are going to make great experience for the customer and it'll work for the long run. One thing I do on a day-to-day -day basis is when I hear someone referred to as a, a resource, you know, we just need more resources. I tend to just challenge that. I say, what, what do you mean by that? Do you mean, do you mean a person or do you mean like a server or you know, a piece of software or some code or something like that? And if you, if you do mean those latter things, call it that, that, call it that rather than referring to people as resources. So I, I aim to challenge it because I think unless we challenge it, it remains the same language It's something that we continue using day-to-day. Right, David, I asked yeah. everyone. Who... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. go ahead. I was just, I just have a personal experience where I spoke at a conference where the speakers were all labeled resources. And I really, uh, I've, I've spoken with this organization a couple of times. And the first time I was really pissed off about it, I felt diminished. And I don't think it's a good practice but my reaction also wasn't that helpful. And I, the second time I went back, 
I really try to change it. And I sit on stage and say, look, I'm really happy to be a resource for you. Because in a sense, I was a resource for these business leaders. And that was honest. That was true. I, I think I was letting my ego get in the way uh, a little bit. So on the one hand, I don't think we should call people resources. But on the other hand, if they if your company does have an HR department, it is what it is. Don't like just be still be the best version of you. Yeah, and I always I always aspire to as a leader create an environment where people can be their best selves in their best day and be supported on their worst day. That's what I aim for. That's good. Right. I ask every I ask every guest on the show, David, to add something new to my backlog, a new template, a retro or or an idea for an experience I can create. And I think I alluded to with your permission, I would love to create something around intent based leadership. So perhaps a, a retrospective, perhaps a, a meeting that's themed around trying to bring more intent based leadership into the workplace. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it depends on how much time and energy. <laughs> you want to put into it. I think <laughs> any um, anything that you could do to help bring it to life, we tend to use movies, scenes to show how teams working together or maybe not so much working together. Uh, but any kind of a little script with a maybe a group of people in a meeting and I have to make a decision, or maybe it's just an imaginary decision about launching 737 Max, or that's just, uh, that's what we're really talking about, but it sounds like we're talking about bottled water <laughs> in any event. Um, yeah, any, any anything like that. Uh, I like also what actions are you gonna do? So for example, we have a series of nudges and things that uh, like, Go to go to, when you go to the restaurant, see if you can get the server to choose. So for us, you, empowerment isn't a concept. It's a practice that you have to practice over and over and over again with your kids when you're interacting in social situations. So you get to practice at the restaurant. Like, can you, quote, empower the server to choose for you? What's involved with that? How when will they say no? When do they say yes? Whether what's the difference? When do you do it? When do you not do it? What's the difference? Do you, are you, can you be aware of that? But again, it doesn't happen just by sitting in bed and thinking about it. It happens by going out and interacting with human beings. And then actions create change, right? It, repeated actions, consistent consistency, I find creates results. Right. It has been a pleasure to have you on the show. I just want to offer you, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners at all, David? I think, I think leadership is hard. I think it's always a balance. I think the world of the future is going to reward people who can, A, they can do stuff. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the person who's just, oh, I'm just a networker. I put people together. Like there's a role, but just, just maybe from my own background, because I'm not good at that. I tend to diminish that. I, I think you need to be able to do stuff, but then get the team to work together and, and and allow them to do it. And it's a balance between how much structure you're going to are you going to impose. And I use that word kind of deliberately. Like if you say this is how we're going to run the meetings, we're going to do a stand up at eight between eight and eight fifteen. Like it's the stand up between eight and eight fifteen. Don't sit down. Stand up or 
you know, whatever the rule is in the meeting. Uh, don't look at me. That was one of my rules. And we always had the meeting standing in a circle. Everyone was looking at me. I was like, why are you looking at me? Oh, because uh, it's your company. Like, don't look at me. <laughs> look at each other. <laughs> uh, so it's hard, but you're making a better world. And uh, don't forget about the people who are like right next to you. Like the customer's way out there. You got people who sit like right next to you and across the table. Those are the people. Take care of those people. I saw a very powerful quote recently on that exact topic, and it was it was centered around the notion that you shouldn't focus just on the stakeholders. Focus on the people within your company, and they will in turn create great value for your stakeholders, your shareholders. Yeah. So right. great, great final thoughts. Customers, customers not number one. Your people are number one. Couldn't agree more. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, Davis. We are always looking for new guests to appear on the show. So do reach out if you'd like to be involved. For one of the largest collections of templates for all things agility on the web, do check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk. And if you want to stay up to date with the latest in virtual agility, don't forget to subscribe to my mailing list on the website. As always, folks, don't stop believing. You've just listened to another episode of the Virtually Agile podcast. Don't forget to check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk for one of the largest collections of free templates on the web on all things Agile. If this show provided value, I'd love your support by following or subscribing on your platform of choice. See you folks next time.